Uh, it's always a challenge coming back to the States and often asked, oh, could you have a missions challenge? And I, and I thought, I'm thinking back over 37 years now of ministry with CEF and thinking what truths from Scripture had uh, the most impact or reminded of time and time again. And coming across Philippians 3, our passage this morning includes four of these truths. And one of those that had a, a big impact on ministry is the sovereignty of God. Uh, second one, it is having joy in the Lord. Uh, third one is knowing Christ. And fourth is having an eternal uh, perspective, viewing life here on earth in uh, light of eternity. And I, I mentioned that one because I was talking to the uh, head of CEF for overseas ministry, and we we're talking about ministry over the years. And I would say, yes, we work with children. We see children come to Christ, but probably one of the greatest blessings, I say hidden blessings I didn't expect, and I say one of the greatest is, I feel like I don't fit in this world. And it's a, I know it's physically here on earth, and I, we struggled that with, with our children, and they grew up as teenage years, and they're that third culture kids, missionary kids, and whenever they were counseled, it's almost like, this is a problem we need to fix. Let's help you fit into this world. And I'm and I'm thinking, embrace it as a blessing from God. This isn't our world here. See it in light of eternity. And I would say one of the, the, this is a difficult sermon to work on. One of the challenges I face in preparing this sermon is that an entire series of sermons could be preached on each one of these topics. Don't panic when I say the first draft I had was 38 pages. I have reduced it since then. It's not 38 pages. It's a lot smaller. But, and Paul includes these truths in one chapter in Philippians chapter 3 as Paul shares his personal spiritual testimony. And Paul touches on his past, Paul's present, and Paul's future. We cannot read through Philippians without coming across the word. What? Joy. Joy or the word rejoice. The main theme throughout Philippians is joy. Um, there's a commentary series by Warren Wiersbe. It's called the B series. The commentary on Philippians is called Be Joyful. So Paul begins Philippians 3 with the command to rejoice. In Philippians chapter 3 verse 1, finally my brothers rejoice in the Lord. This is actually the 11th time Paul mentions joy in this letter. I need to mention, sometimes we get confused between joy and happiness. Joy is not the same as happiness. Happiness is based on circumstances. If our present circumstances are good, then our happiness factor rises. If our favorite team wins, our happiness factor goes up. If they lose, it goes down. We enjoy a beautiful sunny day in the park with the family. Our happiness level rises, but that happiness immediately fades away if we receive discouraging news from the doctor. Happiness is based entirely on the circumstances around us. And get this, happiness can be experienced by both believers and unbelievers. A unbeliever can be happy. Did you know that? They can be happy. But verse 1 says, finally, brothers, 
Paul is writing to believers in Christ Jesus, those in the family of God. The command in verse 1 doesn't simply say rejoice. The verse says rejoice in the Lord. That's only possible if you have a relationship with the Lord. Unbelievers, they may experience happiness, but they will never know joy. Joy transcends above our earthly circumstances. It transcends the sorrows and sufferings of this world. And even in the most difficult moments in our lives, we can rejoice because we have a joy, what's that verse say? In the Lord, our sovereign Lord and Savior who transcends all these earthly circumstances, a God who never changes. One writer described joy as an inner quality of delight in God, the person of God, that's who God is. Delight in the word of God, the work of God, and in the purpose of God. There is no joy to be found in any other place. It's not up to the believer to somehow generate joy in their life. It's the spirit of God who produces that joy in the believer's life. Galatians 5, 22, 23, we're familiar. The fruit of the Spirit, joy is included among that. The greatest is love. Then we have what? Joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness. Joy cannot be found by following a program. And we have friends, believers, who are told by counselors, oh, just hold this object in your pocket, remind you of a, a happy moment in your life, and when you do that, that'll bring back the joy and happy in your life. It cannot be found in a program that any saved or unsaved person can follow to somehow recover a joyful life. It will not work because the fruit of the Spirit is a spiritual fruit of God that's produced in the heart of the believer. Joy is produced by the Spirit in us and by God's power, we're told to rejoice. Now, the same applies to believers who are not following the Spirit. If you're living according to the flesh, don't expect to rejoice always. The verses preceding the fruit of the Spirit, anger, jealousy, envy, so on. If any of these works of the flesh are in your life, you and I will not be able to rejoice. You will not have the Spirit producing that fruit, including joy. So Paul says, rejoice. It's an active verb in the present tense. It just simply means that it's a command to always be rejoicing. Paul is saying, I command all of you who are believers in the body of Christ to always be making every effort to be rejoicing in the Lord all the time. Believers often equate or connect rejoicing with an absence of suffering. Rejoice always doesn't mean you have to be happy about everything that comes along. Paul says, 2 Corinthians 6.10, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing. There are appropriate things to mourn. There are appropriate times to weep and uh, uh, to suffer. And that does not mean you and I cannot rejoice. There's also a time to weep with those who are weeping. Um, Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Don't tell that suffering person, put on a happy face. Sit down with them. Cry with them. To rejoice always does not mean this condition of no suffering. The Bible says actually the opposite. 1 Peter 4.13, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's suffering. Paul is saying, it's to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing. Peter's literally saying, the more you suffer for Christ, the more you can rejoice. And it's natural to think, well, suffering builds up, it becomes more and more difficult to rejoice. It's just the opposite. Suffering, rejoicing can exist side by side. And 
Hebrews 10.34, we saw this. Um, this last spring, we had a missions conference up in, or a CF regional conference with workers from around the world, including, or around Europe, including Ukraine. But in Hebrews 10.34, you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. The believers could rejoice in the Lord knowing there's a loving God who always, who allows everything in the lives of his children for a good reason. And that the church here had in, and we're going to look at this later, an eternal perspective that allowed them to accept joyfully their property taken away. And we'll see that later here in Philippians 3. And this spring, we were at the regional conference. Sue and I were helping in the background to help with the conference Quite a few from the Ukraine. Now, for us, we go to the conference, and after about day two or three, you're thinking, I really miss my bed. I really miss my pillow. And then realizing at the conference, those Ukrainian team did not have a home to go back to. They lost their home. They lost their belongings. They had family who were fighting in the military. Some they didn't know. Are they alive? Are they not? And they were going back. They were carrying, and you could, you could, it was clear, they carried a heavy burden of suffering. And it was evident to everyone at the conference that they were also rejoicing in the Lord. What a testimony and blessing to the other CF workers at the conference. With increased suffering came greater increased rejoicing in the Lord. Can you imagine? What a testimony to the unbelievers around them back in the Ukraine. The unbelieving world would look at them, look at your circumstances. How is that possible? That makes no sense at all. That's a testimony we have as believers to the, those around. For years, um, for years growing up, I struggled to understand lamentation passages of scriptures, prayers of lamentation, prayers of uh, lamenting. Biblical lamenting is not a dark period of our life where we feel anger and resentment towards God. And you read some of those passages, God, why have you turned your back on me? And I feel uh, this darkness coming over me. Lamenting is not a stage we go through where we stop reading his word. We feel distant from the Lord. We doubt his plan and purposes until eventually it leads to rejoicing in the Lord again. No, in fact, actually we call what? Prayers Prayers of lamenting. We're still in fellowship with God. Lamenting is not a period where we turn our back on God, but rather it becomes probably one of the most precious times of personal personal worship before the Lord. Prayers of lamenting. Lamentations 3.21 gives us a concise description of what lamenting is. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. That's what lamenting is. Now, the word hope, hope, used here and elsewhere in Scripture, it's not the same as how we use hope in daily conversation. Well, I really hope it doesn't rain today. I really hope I do well on my test. Uh, I hope our team wins. That hope is more on, I'll call it wishful thinking. (laughs) But hope in the Bible is belief in an unwavering truth firmly grounded on the unchanging Word of God. And in Lamentations 3.22, we read, What truths the writer calls to mind. First, in Lamentations 3.22, God's mercies never end. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to the end. What does he think on? The steadfast love of God. And that is a covenant God. That is love because of who he is, not based on us. In other words, this is 
the love that makes God God. Who God is is more satisfying answer than the why. And with this in mind, in CEF, sometimes if I'm a Sunday school or children's lesson, especially if it's a familiar narrative, David and Goliath or whatever it is, one thing, I, one of the first things I do is I look at every passage, and there's something there, every passage, and I ask, what can I learn, what character of God can I learn about in this passage? That's a good practice. Just ask yourself, what, what, can I, what comes out that I can learn about the character of God? And I say the character of God. What makes God, God? It's not, oh, God loves me, but God is love. God is gracious. God is merciful. And this is who God is. Secondly, God is always good. Uh, Lamentations 3, 20, 32. But though he calls grief, and there it will be grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. God's purposes are always from a heart of love. We have these truths, those same truths I mentioned in Lamentations in, again, in 1 Peter 5, 10 to 11. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. So from this verse, what? Suffering is to be expected. Suffering is limited for a little while. Grace is available in verse 11. Suffering leads to worship. We, can, we come to the Lord honest and open with how we feel. Lord, this is what I'm going through right now. Whatever your situation, Lord, I'm really struggling, but I'm trusting in you. I'm trusting in you. Lord, I'm really struggling with loneliness. I'm struggling with heartache, with doubt, with fear, with anxiety, with pain. But I know you are with me. You uphold me. Your love is everlasting. In you, there's victory over sin. Your mercy and grace is never ending and so on. Lamenting brings about healing. That's what lamentation is. It's possible to rejoice always because rejoicing is not about you, but it's focused outwardly towards others and towards God. Remember in Sunday school, we're taught how to spell joy. Jesus, others, you, in that order. Joy comes through looking outside of yourself, what is being done by God in the lives of others. When we share the gospel with a lost world in need of a Savior, we see Christ do all the work in the hearts of others. This brings true joy and seeing others coming to Christ. And verse 1, rejoice in the Lord. Ultimately, it looks towards God, who He is, what He's done, our relationship to Him. We can sing happy, joyful songs. We can put on that happy face uh, before arriving to church. We can try to go back and remember those memories, happy memories but our past, from our past, but they will not bring joy. We need to return to God and look at who He is, remember His mercy, His loving kindness, established in heaven forever and ever. That transcends all earthly circumstances. And that brings us to Paul and his, sharing his personal testimony here in Philippians 3. This is not, there is not one drop of joy outside of knowing Jesus Christ. The more we grow to know the Lord Jesus, the more we will grow uh, to know joy. In Philippians 3, Paul gives us his, again, his personal spiritual testimony. The first 11 chapters, uh, Paul is focusing on his past. 
Then Paul t- talks about his present in his person, personal testimony, verses 12 to 16. And then Paul's personal testimony in reference to his future, verse 17 to 21. And verse 2, chapter 3, look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Paul's speaking of the, they're called the Judaizers, the evildoers. These men taught that the sinner was saved by faith plus good works. Paul's comparing and contrasting himself with the Judaizers. They boast in the flesh, or uh, one translation, confidence in the flesh. Or a phrase we hear nowadays, anything you can do, I can do better. That's bragging the Judaizers were driven by confidence in the flesh. Now, to deal with these people, to teach the Philippians how they are to live for Christ, Paul gives his Christian testimony. If anyone thinks he have confidence in the flesh, verse 4 and 6, then I myself, Paul, have better reasons for such confidence. Paul says, I know all those high standards. I was a Pharisee, the strictest sect of Jews with the strictest regulations but they never brought me to Jesus Christ. I did it all, and at the end of the day, it comes to absolutely nothing in real spiritual terms. And then we come to verse 7 to 8. Paul was confessing to them what he was before he came to know Christ, and now in verse 7 to 8, he says, I count, it counts for absolutely nothing in the presence of God. Count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. We're reminded of Jim Elliot's words, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. That's what Paul experienced. He lost his religion. He lost his reputation. But he gained far more than he lost. In verse 8, the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. This means much more than the knowledge about Christ. Because Paul, the Pharisee, he, Paul, had that kind of historical information in his head before he was saved. To know Christ means to have a personal relationship with him through faith. In verse 9, Paul said, I was lost without Christ, but now I am found in him, in Christ, and any righteousness of my own is just worthless garbage. But the righteousness that is mine in Jesus Christ, last forever. What a blessed relief for sinners. And this coming from a man who previously destroyed the very lives of those who love the Lord Jesus. And to hear Paul share that in his testimony. And in verse 10 to 11, when he became a Christian, it was not the end of Paul, but it was the beginning. His experience with Christ was so tremendous that it had transformed his life. And this experience continued in the years to follow. It was a personal experience experience, he said, that I may know him. As Paul walked with Christ, he prayed, he obeyed his will, sought to glorify his name. And if anyone's in Christ, they are a new creation. Altogether, the old is gone and the new has come. It's enormously transforming in our lives. So Paul tells us what he was before he came to know Christ. Paul tells us what he discovered when once he did know Christ. And then finally, Paul gives us some indication of how he was changed through knowing Christ. This comes in the second half of the chapter, uh, verses 12 to 16. As believers, we say, oh, we need to know Christ. But what difference does knowing Christ make in your daily lives? We know that we need to know Christ. Day to day, what difference is that going to make in your life? Firstly, 
in verse 12 to 13, one, um, it's not that I've already obtained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. I do not consider that I've made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. Firstly, there is a dissatisfaction. One writer described it as a sanctified dissatisfaction. Paul was satisfied with Jesus Christ, but he was not satisfied with his Christian life. Many Christians, they're self-satisfied because they compare their running with that of other Christians, usually those who are not making much progress. My progress isn't so bad when I look at that person. I'm reminded of we are talking about running this morning. <clears throat> My wife, Sue, she loves jogging in Switzerland. Switzerland, she enjoyed it. Romanian, Romania, she hasn't jogged. And there is a reason for that. Romania it has one of the highest densely populations of brown bear in the world. And it's like a grizzly bear. They're everywhere. And at the, there was, years ago, there was about 7,000. There's a lot of brown bear. And they're coming into the city she doesn't want to jog. I don't know why, but, uh, but she was a bit concerned, so I gave her a tip. And I said, just run out with someone who's slower than you. You'll be okay. <laughs> but she, she wasn't really thrilled with that, that tip. But my progress isn't so bad. Look at that person. Another difference knowing Christ makes in our daily lives is devotion. It produces in Paul a single-minded simplicity. Verse 13, but one thing I do. Forgetting what lies behind, I press on what's ahead. Paul says, I'm, Paul had a busy schedule. I'm sure he did. But Paul is saying, I'm just doing one thing. I'm not doing a hundred different things every day, but I'm doing one thing in many different ways every day. And when you look at your schedule that tomorrow and you look at everything that you have to do, you might be at home in a factory, a businessman, you're at school. You can wake up, look at that long to-do list, And put this one thing on your calendar every day. This one thing I do. And what Paul is saying, I want to enjoy and pursue and make known the surpassing greatness of Jesus Christ. Because he has become my Lord. That's one thing you do in many different ways throughout the day. Paul had this devotion, that single-minded simplicity. Each day, that's what I'm doing. A third way in knowing Christ makes a difference in our Christian walk is with our direction. Moving forward, looking toward the future. Forget what lies behind, straining toward to what lies ahead. Now, throughout the epistles, Paul regularly uses athletic analogies, goal, prize, running, competition, striving. One writer described it, Christians are like runners who refuse to look around or look back, but keep running with their eyes on the goal, not looking around to see what others are doing or looking back at past successes or failures. The unsaved person is controlled by the past, but the Christian running the race looks towards the future. Now, we wish that we could erase those certain bad memories, but we cannot. To forget in the Bible, one way of thinking of it is no longer to be influenced by or affected by So when God promises their sins and iniquities, will I remember no more, Hebrews 10, 17, God is not suggesting that he will conveniently have a bad memory. This is impossible with God. The Lord's saying, I will no longer hold their sins 
against them. Their sins can no longer affect their standing with me or influence my attitude towards them. So forgetting those things which are behind for us simply means that we break the power of the past by living for the future. We cannot change the past, but we can change the meaning of the past. There were things in Paul's past that could have been weights on him uh, as events. He could not change his understanding of them. He could... um, The events did not change, but his understanding of them changed. A good example of that principle is in Joseph in Genesis 45 when he met his brothers the second time and revealed himself to them. Remember that setting? He held no grudge against them. He had been mistreated terribly, very much, but he saw the past from God's point of view. And as a result, he was unable to hold anything against his brother. Joseph knew that God had a plan for his life, a race for him to run, and fulfilling that plan, looking ahead, he broke the power of that past. And many Christians were shackled by the regrets of our past. They're trying to run the race by looking backward. And there are some Christians who are distracted by the successes of the past. And that's just as bad. Verse Verse 14, I press toward the goal The upward call, this is a calling day by day. You're becoming Christ-like in Philippians 3, 14 to 19. Three things that are key in pursuit of that prize, seeking, Paul says, seek godly examples. Verse 17, stay away from ungodly examples. Verse 18 to 19, and we'll look at the end here, develop an eternal expectation of the future. Those things that will shape the things you do now. Seek godly examples. Those who live as a pattern of faith and service to God. And we see that in verse 17. Imitate me. The Philippians, they were looking to the wrong examples. And Paul's saying, consider those who are teaching and leading you in faith. Choose to follow those who live lives that most line up with God's word. What examples are guiding you in your Christian walk? What is, was the outcome of their walk? What kind of an example are you being to others? Seek godly examples. Stay away from ungodly examples. Verse 18, they were described as enemies of the cross. That means they were earthly-minded. Self-sacrifice is not what they're about. Fulfilling the wants, desires of the flesh isn't their goal. They may even profess to be believers in the church. We are to stay away from ungodly examples. Their minds, hearts, affections are satisfied By earthly things, their end is destructions. So the Philippian believers, Paul is telling them, follow instead the patterns of Paul. We have Silas, Timothy, Epaphroditus, others mentioned in this letter. Use them as your model in life. And why? And we see this coming into verse 20. Because your citizenship is in heaven. You don't belong down here on earth. You belong in heaven. So follow a model of those who are striving to heaven. They want to get there. Godly examples. Stay away from ungodly examples. And thirdly, develop an eternal expectation of the future as Paul's sharing his testimony here. That eternal perspective will shape the things you do now. Now, when I I talk about these um, heavenly citizenship in the end, there's a wide range of ages here. Whether you're teens, young, this applies to everybody. Don't sit there and say, well, that's when I get older, when most of my friends go on before me, and I'm closer to thinking heavenly-minded. This applies to you, regardless of your age. 
Paul says, I press to the mark in our pursuit to be Christ-like, just like that runner. Our focus is on the finish line. And whatever point you are at in your walk, you are focused on that finish line. Heaven is our home. Whether you're 16 years old or 80 years old, heaven is our home. And we're going on in heaven should be... What's going on in heaven should be more important to you than what's going on here on earth. Paul says, I look forward to the goal that's set before me in heaven, and I'm striving to reach that goal. Believers in the church are to live from an eternal perspective and not become absorbed, absorbed in the here and now. And we see this so often in churches focused on you have the health, wealth, messages, striving for success in this world. They become, and there's so many distractions in this world to that true message of the gospel. And Paul, throughout this passage, he's saying, raise your gaze, look up. And it's hard because there's just so much around us to distract us in the here and now. And again, regardless of your age, you could be eight years old, look up. Look up and see it in a heavenly perspective. And the phrase I use on a weekly basis, see that in light of eternity. I'm struggling with this in school or whatever. See it in light of eternity. Paul is focused on heaven and the reason for this heavenly perspective because it carries at that eternal quality. Citizenship in heaven. Paul used that word citizenship. Now I'm thinking, well, there's actually some other words I'd probably use. Doesn't it sound much more impressive? Our hope is in heaven. Doesn't that sound more impressive? Why citizenship? Well, who's Paul talking to? The Philippians, they knew full well that word citizenship. They knew what that concept was. And verse 20, to understand the full impact of that word citizenship, it's helpful to understand about a little bit about Philippi, its history, what was happening in Philippi at the time this was written. Philippi is a Roman uh, colony that had the highest privilege of any city outside of Italy. They were ruled by Roman law, self-governing under Roman law. They had Romans' rights and privileges, freedom from certain taxes um, than even other countries had to pay, freedom from interrogation. Paul, you remember Paul used that as a Roman citizen in Jerusalem. They were about to scourge him. They backed off because it was illegal. He was a citizen. Freedom from the worst of the death sentences. Roman citizen, no crucifixion. Even a right to trial in Rome, Paul would use that in Caesarea when he appealed to Caesar, a right to trial. Rome established the law. Rome protected their rights. The people of Philippi as Roman citizens looked to Rome for their protection and their rights. A good way to sum it up, the lowliest of Roman citizens, the lowest of Roman citizens was even above the highest aristocrat who was not a Roman citizen. Boy, that's a lot to be proud of. <laughs> if you're a citizen, the people of Philippi were proud of their status as a Roman colony with Roman citizenship. This kind of national pride is not foreign to us today. Now, for Sue and I living overseas all these years, I didn't realize how much we had confidence in that earthly passport that we had, the U.S. citizenship. We're over there and it's, it's like, oh, the, these things are going on. We're trusting the Lord. But deep down, we don't realize we're saying, things really get bad, we can go back to the States, can't we? We have that passport. We're bordering Ukraine and all these things are happening. But worse comes to worse, we have that passport in our pocket and we don't realize how much we 
feel like, oh, I can fall back on that. And then sometimes we look in the news and we say, well, maybe Romania is a better place to stay right now. So there's different things that we follow in the news. And actually, that was when I said, well, Sue, maybe that passport's not as exciting as it was before. And we're proud that we had that. But realize the kind of national pride is not foreign to us today. Roman citizenship had its downsides for, downside for Christians. Roman citizens were not allowed to participate in any religion that wasn't sanctioned by Rome. Philippi hosted what was called the imperial cult. Caesar Augustus, Julius Caesar, Claudius, they're all mentioned by name having been worshipped as gods. And at the time this letter was written, the two most popular titles for Caesar were Lord and Savior. What did Paul use in Philippians 3.20? We await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. No wonder the believers suffered in Philippi. They opposed what was going on around them. And what was going on around them, they, it was opposing them. Our citizenship, the country to which we belong, is in heaven. Our heavenly citizenship focuses on Jesus Christ, the ruler, sits in heaven. He is our Savior. He is our Lord. Our authority is in heaven. Our citizenship is in heaven. Whatever citizenship we have here on earth pales in the, to the citizenship we, and standing we have in heaven. That's your future. The time we spend here is nothing in light of eternity. In his future expectation, Paul is saying, it will shape what I'm doing now and what is most important to me now. And again, whether you're 80 or 90 years old and says, boy, heaven is just so close. This is true even for children. When you go to school, my future expectation will shape what I'm doing now at school each day. And those closing verses in chapter 3 we read, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body, the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. The Lord Jesus is also the one who will transform you. When Jesus Christ comes from heaven, he's going to transform our bodies to be like him. Now, Paul uses a word here that talks about our outward transformation, which implies that our inner, inner being is already what it's supposed to be. As believers, we have been made a new creation in Christ. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things become new. 2 Corinthians 5.17, we are new creations in Christ. But the outward that people see is still that weak body, that body of lowliness. Now, this and I will say as we get older, the subject comes more often on a weekly basis in our home. Sue and I said, boy, I can't wait until I get out of this body. Anyone else? <laughs> you say, Lord, this lowly body that's broken and, and I'm forgetting things. I'm thankful for my wife because I can go and I say, honey, why did I come into this room? I forget. And things like this. And it is, I'm thinking, oh, that lowly body. Jesus says, look to the future, especially as our bodies become weaker. Remember, we have a hope. When Christ returns, he will make us outwardly what he has already created inwardly and will be conformed to the image of his body. And he says he will transform our lowly bodies. The, these bodies, our physical weakness, the source of fleshly temptations, and it suffers pain and death. And unless Jesus comes back, this body is going to die and decay. And one of the internal struggles that every Christian battles is that longing to be free from this sinful flesh and be perfect like Christ. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from the body of death? 
I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord, Romans 7.24. So we are short at the end of chapter, 20, or chapter 3, verse 21, that the Lord Jesus Christ has the power to do miraculous things. The entire universe is under the sovereign control of God. We see that, and Paul brings that out in his personal testimony. God, he's able to raise your body and form you unto his own image and likeness. The sovereign God of the universe. Paul, uh, Warren Worsby wrote, Paul looked up and eagerly anticipated the return of the Lord. Christ had taken care of Paul's past. Verse 13. Lord, he would also take care of Paul's future. And as for Paul's present, his confidence was knowing that he, the Lord, is able. So whatever your struggles, the solution is not found in earthly answers but ultimately in heavenly mindedness. So therefore, we need to let the word of God dwell in us richly, Colossians 3.16, to allow God to transform our hearts and minds. And as we come to know Christ and grow in him and become more like Christ, we will become more foreign to this fallen, this, uh, fallen world that we're in. It becomes more foreign. I just don't fit in this world. This isn't our home. So when you have struggles, whatever their source, let them be a reminder over and over again. Turn your eyes to Jesus. Whether it's a struggle as a Christian struggles um, with our weak bodies, sickness and loss we have, this is God graciously saying, look to me. Your citizenship, it's in heaven. So Philippians 3 includes several truths that the Lord has been uh, pressing on my heart that have been an impact on ministry, day-to-day living for the Lord. And these truths have been a a challenge and encouragement to me. Included in this chapter, or actually I go through Philippians 3, is a a daily prayer request I often return to for self-examination before the Lord. Lord, that I may have joy in the Lord today. That I would, everything today, I would see that in light of eternity. See that in light of eternity. But you know what? These truths actually have, this actually... A prayer request for our children. If you have children, this is, uh, I challenge you, uh, go down through this. Our children, they're halfway around the world. Yes, America, we still say America is a foreign country for them. We don't always know what the details of what are going on in their lives. But I go down through that as, as a prayer request every day. I never, ever prayed that our children would be happy. Oh, excuse me. I never prayed that they'd be happy, and it's hard. I pray that in good times and through suffering, they may have joy in the Lord. I, and again, this is hard as parents. I've never prayed that our children would be successful. Pray that they would bear eternal fruit. And daily, it's like, oh, I wish I could be there with them at times, but I, I pray that they would continue to grow in their knowledge of the Lord, to look for godly examples who encourage them in their walk and then that they would have an eternal perspective to view everything in light of eternity. This is not our home. And I know they don't fit in all the time, but that I pray that they don't feel comfortable in this world. They may not like that I pray that. Sometimes they would probably feel more comfortable, but it's that, no, this isn't their home. And it all points back, and in Paul's testimony, it all points back to knowing Christ. And I close with verse 8. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth 
of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. That's Paul's personal spiritual testimony.